Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm your host, James Nurse. This episode is number 26, and somehow we've managed to produce new content every fortnight since the launch in summer 2020. In the last 12 months, I've welcomed dozens of authors onto the show to discuss their work, and I'm looking forward to hosting many more. If you like the podcast, then please leave a review, tell your colleagues, and be sure to subscribe, but not before listening to this latest episode on the International Classification of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Well, hello there. It seems fitting to mark the end of our first year with a big topic, and I'm not sure we could find one bigger than the International Classification of Inherited Metabolic Disease. I mean, it's, it's basically everything. So for a topic this large, I need help and some supervision. So I'm pleased to welcome back my editor-in-chief, Professor Ava Moreva, as a co-host. Hello, Ava. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm honoured to uh, be able to participate today. Now, obviously, for a big topic, you need some big guests, and I'm very happy to welcome all three of the authors today, and they are... Hi, thank you, James and Eva. Um, I'm Shamima Rahman. I'm Professor of Paediatric Metabolic Medicine at the UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health and Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. I'm Carlos Ferreira. I'm a clinical geneticist at the National Human Genome Research Institute of the National Institutes of Health in the United States, and also thank you so much for the invitation. Honoured to be here. And I'm Johannes Trocker. I'm head of um, the Institute of Human Genetics in Innsbruck in Austria. And I'm very happy that we can talk about the ICIMD today. So obviously, we can't undertake this approach to classifying everything without really knowing what we mean by everything. And when I spoke to Peter Clayton for a podcast really uh, quite some time ago now, he suggested thinking about conditions that affect enzymes and those that affect transporters. So I'm wondering what definition you use to work out what is an IMD? Um, we're following the quo vadis classification that Shamima and Eva and, and Johannes and all the other main editors of JMD published back in, I think, 2015, meaning anything that participates in metabolism, whether it has an abnormality in a test or not, and everything includes not just enzymes, but also transporters and sometimes transcription factors. We didn't really subdivide it into enzyme deficiencies or enzyme superactivities, I guess, for some conditions versus trans transporter ones. But we do have all of those things in, in the classification itself. Like to give you an example, in our group of serum disorders or serum, serum metabolic disorders, we do have, you know, the biosynthetic enzymes that participate in producing serum, but also the serum transporter deficiency. And the same holds true for some vitamin deficiencies where we have deficiencies in enzymes like participate in, let's say, for example, recycling or bio of biotin, but also transporters of biotin that needs to, you know, participate in getting the, the cofactor where it needs to be. And perhaps the only exception is for the group of mitochondrial disorders. So I'll, I'll let Shamima talk more about that. Yes, Carlos. And just to go back to that Quo Vardis paper back in 2015, what, what we were saying was that traditionally inherited metabolic diseases were considered to be those that are mostly inherited, occasionally de novo, genetic disorders of the biosynthesis or breakdown of substances within specific pathways that were recognized by specific biochemical tests and sometimes treatable by metabolic intervention. And then we amended this in the Covardis paper really to encapsulate some of the emerging novel disorders. And I would encourage the listeners to go and look at that paper for some of those newer disorders that we considered back then. I don't know if Johannes would like to add to that. Well, I think I would like to maybe expand on the question, do we think enzymes are transporters? I think we shouldn't think proteins even. We should not. 
but we should think pathways. Um, when I started medicine, I actually liked biochemistry because I felt it was simple because you can combine lumping and splitting. So you have lots of individual enzymes, but you have large pathways. And if you look at the pathway, you understand a lot and a lot of enzymes. So I feel the special aspect of the ICIMD is really that you can reach every single inherited metabolic disease by understanding the groups of diseases that quite often have similar clinical presentations have affect similar functions. And it's much easier to remember a few groups of disorders. And then once you are in the group, go on to find the right specific protein. And you have loads of sim single proteins or genes that you try to remember and you usually forget half of them. And if I may say something, when we wrote Covadis together in 2015, we took a challenge because you could say metabolism is important in all human disease, especially in all genetic conditions. And that's true. I think what we mean by our statement is that the disorders where metabolism or altered metabolism is the essence of the disease or the most important for the pathomechanism, we would consider a metabolic condition. Okay, so if you've explained what's included, why is it even necessary to classify these? I may start. Um, what we encountered was quite a lot of confusion amongst the community, the metabolic community, and amongst colleagues and others working in allied um, medicine roles, not just in metabolism. And we thought it would be a good place to have a classification that everyone could go to that was easily accessible and that was logical and where you didn't have to remember everything that was there, but you could look it up quite quickly. I'm certainly a fan of not having to remember everything. So when you how do you go about generating this, this classification, this huge system that you've come up with? I think I can tackle that. But in this kind of ties into the prior question, you know, because really one thing led to the other. And there have been classifications going around forever, meaning since Garrett described inborn metabolism, basically. And one thing that was obvious is that, you know, each person was doing, in a way, their own thing. Like, for example, Johannes created this really great hierarchical classification that or was used by the SSIM for, for almost a decade, I think. It was created in 2012. And then we created, um, we as in myself with Ninat Blau and Jerry Vockley and, and Clara van Carnebeek, what we call the nosology back in 2018. And I think one thing that the nosology suffered from is that it was overly complicated. So maybe we created a problem, if anything. But also that there were only four people involved and we didn't really have the buy-in from the whole community at large. And then after our nosology, which was very comprehensive, but also very convoluted, I would say, I'll be honest, John Marie and and uh, Angeles created a simplified clinical classification that I know you had a podcast about in the past. So there were different classifications within just a few years of each other. Some of them have their own strengths. Like one was more based on pathways. One, you know, was more clinical, et cetera. And basically, I think it was Johannes, in fact, who reached out to, 
to me, what Shamima and some other people, um, uh, Matthias Baumgartner was also involved and said, if we should have a meeting in, in Athens, this was back when we could still meet in person uh, in 2018. And we had that meeting. It lasted just like, it was very cordial, by the way. I was very, very, very fearful of meeting all these giants. <laughs> But but it was very cordial, and um, we basically agreed to create a unified classification that this time would benefit from having inputs from many experts and also um, something as unified and, and hopefully ratified, which eventually, as you will hear, it was ratified by the major metabolic societies around the world. So So that's what prompted the whole thing, meaning having something, I think one of the advantages we wanted to achieve is basically the best of all prior classifications, meaning something that would at the same time be comprehensive and have the capacity to be updated in real time, but at, uh, at the same time also being accessible to people and even used for didactic purposes. And But again, I think that was that was the main rationale, meaning having a unified approach with buy-in from, you know, we had something like 75 to 80 experts that provided expert advice and that we benefited from. We actually modified a lot of our specific entries based on their input I should also mention the major drivers of all of these three power classifications were part of this one of the ICIMD, meaning Johannes, of course, uh, one of the leaders of the whole thing. And then uh, on my end, uh, on the nosology part, myself and Nainat and Clara and Jerry were all, were all involved. And then also Angeles and Jean-Marie were part of it. And in fact, they were uh, instrumental. You know, they had their own very strong opinions on what want to include or not or where to include it. So I think we benefited from that diversity of, of opinions and, and we made a much stronger, but at the same time, accessible classification. Hey, maybe I, I chop in again um, and I go back how it all started for me, because when I started in the mid 1990s, many years ago in metabolic disease, I had no idea. So I knew a little bit from biochemistry. I loved biochemistry, as I said, but I just thought there are too many, there are hundreds of diseases, no way that you can understand them all. And then I thought, okay, there must be a system in it. So I felt if you can group the individual conditions into kind of understandable uh, yeah, summaries, then it makes it easier. So what's the difference between amino acid disorders and organic aciduria? So, you know, amino acids are in the cytosol and they have little to do with energy metabolism. Organic acidurias are in the mitochondria and there's some energy uh, involved and things like that. Simple um, aspects that you can link to large groups. What's the special thing about glycogen? Um, there are loads of glycogenosis, but then they all have something in common. The lysosomal diseases, um, you can group them in the mucopolysaccharidosis and the sphingolipidosis. And most people actually feel, oh, this is beyond me. But if you actually open yourself up to trying to understand what is the difference actually in a mucopolysaccharidosis and a sphingolipidosis, it's easy. And suddenly, and that's the nice thing, is you know a little more than the people beside you who feel biochemistry is a disaster. And suddenly you're the expert, which makes you feel good. And uh, it also helps, uh, helps patients because suddenly it's not a big mountain. I mean, we have in Innsbruck, we have lovely mountains. You can climb them, but it's exhausting. And just tackle it. You can just start and with simple group-based approach, two inborn errors, you get 1,500 single gene disorders. That's amazing. And you all, everyone who's listening can achieve this. If you think from large to small, if you start with the big groups 
and then the bit smaller subgroups, and then suddenly you are in a rare disease which has been only described 30 times in the whole world, and you can make a diagnosis. That's fantastic. And I don't know any other specialty um, that is open to this kind of logical, hierarchical, clinical approach, which is phenomenal. It's easy. Don't be afraid of metabolic diseases. They are easy. And if you believe they're complicated, they're not. But how many groups there are? Because if I remember the Sodubre classification, a recent paper also in GIMD had three major groups and divided those to three of each subgroups. And it seems like that's easy to understand and follow. But how many groups do we have in this new classification? No, I, I think there are 24 groups in our classification, but um, I really like this apparently simplified classification, which divides intoxication and deficiency and energy metabolism. But really, there are difficult to differentiate it even in single diseases. If you look at the most well-known inborn error, maybe phenylketonuria, this is both an accumulation and deficiency. So you have some symptoms that are um, due to deficiency of tyrosine, and you have some symptoms that are due to accumulation of phenylalanine. So for me, this doesn't help me. I'd like to understand the pathway of phenylalanine and tyrosine and kind of marvel at the different presentations, but really they are all except tyrosine type 1, they're all slowly progressive conditions that cause non-energy-related clinical symptoms. So that's easy. And then you know PKU and you know tyrosinemia type 2 or alkaptonuria, and then they have special features, but they are not important in the beginning. You can think of someone develops slowly um, symptoms which are odd, and there's nothing involved in energy metabolism. There's no hypoglycemia, there's no hyperaminemia. So there are a few tests that you can do in any hospital, and suddenly you're on the right track. And then you do amino acid analysis, which you can order very, very cheap without any uh, DNA test necessary, and you get an abnormality, and you get the right diagnosis. It's beautiful. So I, I love the the article on the clinical classification, but in the main figure, there are single enzyme names, SLC5A1 or whatever, which I find too complicated for me. I find a simple group-based approach, the most simple way to approach inherited metabolic diseases. And I will actually double down on that and uh, because I fully agree. And in the case of the simplified classification, like Eva said, there were three groups, small molecules, complex molecules, and, and energy defects, if I remember correctly. And then they would subdivide that into, you know, further subgroups like small molecules would be intoxication versus deficiency or accumulation versus deficiency, I should say. And, and like Johannes said, this is, um, not always black or white. Um, I'm going to use an example of a group of disorders. I really like serine biosynthetic disorders again, because you have, of course, deficiency of serine, a small molecule, but you also have accumulation of deoxysphingolipids, and that is actually intricately related to the pathophysiology of these serine biosynthetic disorders, because it's this accumulation of toxic deoxysphingolipids that leads to neuropathy and most likely to ichthyosis as well. So it, you actually have accumulation in a quote-unquote deficiency disorder that is, again, directly related to the pathomechanism. And you also have the deficiency of, of glycosphingolipids because you need that 
that that you know serum to be incorporated into into the lipids for sugars to attach to that lipid molecule. So you actually have deficiency of large molecules as well, not just a small molecule deficiency, intricately related to, you know, in this case, the CNS manifestations of a disease. So it's really hard sometimes to come up with, oh, is this a deficiency of a small molecule or a large molecule or is that intoxication? So it's a, and I think also when it comes to the number of groups, we have six supergroups or whatever you want to call them that are subdivided into 24 categories. And then those 24 categories are subdivided further. And it might be hard to visualize now, but I would encourage people to go to the website. And, uh, you know, one of the advantages is we have this interactive sunburst chart. I actually tried to create it myself initially, but I lack the bioinformatics skills to do it. So Marcus Keller, who gets a big shout out, who works with Johannes in Innsbruck, is the one who actually created this from scratch. So you can actually go to these large groups. There's only six of them. And then, like Johannes said, we go from large to small or from easy to kind of more complicated. So you can start with something you can grasp easily in your mind. And uh, and you can start zooming in from these six supergroups into the 24 categories and then further on to the individual disorders. So I would highly encourage people to go to the website and, and to use the interactive sunburst. But Johannes, anything you want to say? Well, it was your idea to have the sunburst chart, uh, Carlos. So it's uh, really the, the beautiful image you had in your mind. Um, but I agree, it's very easy to actually go from large to small or to combine lumping and splitting in more than 1,500 diseases. So, for example, if you look at um, intermediate metabolism, we've divided them in nutrients and energy, which have clinical differences, but also obviously other different pathways. If you go then to nutrients, you have the large groups of amino acids, carbohydrates, and so on. And then in amino acids, you go to the phenylalanine and tyrosine metabolism, for example. And if you do this, you get all the diseases um, in a table with the different OMIM numbers with a link to the IM base, which is a beautiful comprehensive um, database of inherited disease. You get the gene information. If you click at the gene name, um, you go to the nomenclature page. So really it depicts and make it tangible how you can go from large to small. You know, if you go back and just say, okay, what is intermediate metabolism? You vaguely remember that from medical school, maybe. And then you just can actually describe what are the main features. There's something going on. There may be related to dietary intake. There may be things you can measure in the lab. You can measure blood sugar, ketones, lactate, ammonia. So there are certain tests um, that you have access to or you should have access to in your hospital. And if you understand a little bit, you understand enough to make a diagnosis in the middle of the night. Um, just to give you an example, when I was still on call in the uh, metabolic unit a long time ago in Marburg in Germany, I was called at about six in the morning um, by a doctor in intensive care who said, we've just admitted a child and three months old, comatose child, and uh, we tried to get blood, but the, um, the lab said they couldn't measure anything because there was too many lipids in it. And then we did a test and it had hypoglycemia. So I sat in the middle of the night, it's glycogenous type 1. And the, the doctor presented that in the morning and the head of the hospital um, said, it couldn't be, it's too rare. And sure, it was true. It's no, it's no difficulty when you understand that glycogen is required to provide sugar. 
and particularly when you're um, in the first months of age and there is a major problem, you have too little sugar and the body tries to mobilize fat to get energy and you get ketones and so on. It's all very simple and there and you can make a complex diagnosis of a disease that you haven't heard of if you understand the pathway. So if you understand the connection between the biochemistry and then have the tests available that allow you to check metabolism in your patient, you are immediately at the right treatment. And that's so beautiful. And that's why it's so important to have a logical approach and don't think, oh, glycogen type 1A, it's too complicated. One of 1,500 disease, I can't learn them all. You can understand what's happening when you have a sugar release problem. If you have a hypoglycemia, you have certain set of tests. And if you understand the groups, you get the right diagnosis without any genetic investigation, even necessarily without any really specialized test. And you can treat your patient immediately in the right way. I'm sure they were disappointed that you didn't turn up to sniff the child and taste the urine. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's what's, what's expected of metabolists. Um, and I mean, obviously, I, I, I love Jean-Marie's paper. I think it, it presents a really nice approach for a generalist to take to cases. And, I, and it's important to say these two classifications, they can coexist. They are in many ways complementary and they're used in, in slightly different ways. I believe that the um, simplified classification really complements quite nicely the ICIMD because the concepts are very similar. And we owe a great debt to Jean-Marie always focusing on the different principles of clinical presentations like intoxication or organ damage or uh, accumulation. And really, this is the way we start. What we are trying to do with the ICIMD is we link the groups to the characteristic clinical features that are very beautifully outlined in the 2019 paper by Jean-Marie. So I believe when you combine the two approaches, you really get to a very simple way of finding the right diagnosis and the right treatment very rapidly in your patient. So they are not rivals. I mean, we started with the ICIMD before Jean-Marie submitted his simplified classification and Jean-Marie was part of the ICIMD. So it's really different ways of looking at the same approach. And if you understand the difference between the two different approaches, you really find it easy to get into inherited metabolic disease. Well, I'm, I'm hoping we're going to convince people that they're, they're very easy. I think sometimes metabolists are determined to claim that they aren't. <laughs> and I know when um, I was looking at your paper, one of, in one section you talk about sort of genotype versus phenotype classification. You were talking there about how did you decide between a, a genotypic versus a phenotypic classification? I mean, we focus on the gene as the single objective unit. That actually goes back to um, the time when we started with the SIM classification um, more than a decade ago, and which was also on behalf of the ICD-11 at the time. And we were told we have to have a clinical classification because that's the structure that was requested. And we felt when we discussed it at the time, it's too complicated and the same gene can be associated with very different clinical presentations. If you look at Gaucher, there's completely different presentations or uh, Fabry, which has completely different organ systems. So it's very difficult to have a clinical classification 
but rather again try to understand the biochemistry and um, go from the understanding of the pathway to an understanding of the disturbed function and then the range of clinical presentation that you may achieve. I'd like to say that that was particularly important for the group of mitochondrial disorders because historically we've had a phenotypic classification that's been syndromic and a biochemical classification based on the OXFOS enzyme deficiencies. And for a very long time, there were very few genetic diagnoses to go with those phenotypic and biochemical classifications. And this led to some rather odd classifications and odd genotype phenotype problems that we were encountering. For example, Lee syndrome, which is probably one of more common presentations of mitochondrial disease in childhood, we now know is associated with 113 different genes with many different um, underlying pathomechanisms. And some of those patients can have isolated deficiency of complex one or complex four, and others can have multiple respiratory chain deficiencies. Along the lines of the biochemical classification, one of the things that emerged in another classification system that's been adopted, I think, by OMIM is groups called the combined OXFOS deficiencies. So there's things like COX-PD1 to more than 19. And those are all combined OXFOS deficiencies, but you don't get any flavour from that label of what the underlying path of the mechanism is. So some of those could be mitochondrial DNA depletion disorders or defects of, of mitochondrial gene expression or of iron sulfur cluster cofactor assembly for the OXFOS complexes. And so what we aim to do in the ICMD was really to, to get away from these phenotypic and biochemical complexities that we were encountering and really go back to the basics, which would be the gene and to organize the gene defects according to the pathomechanism. So we've separated out the mitochondrial DNA disorders and the nuclear gene defects. And then we've got a, a group of different nuclear encoded defects, including subunits and assembly factors of each of the five OXFOS enzyme complexes, and then disorders of mitochondrial DNA maintenance, disorders of mitochondrial gene expression, and then disorders of mitochondrial import, the solute carriers and, and some others. I won't go through all of them, but you could go into the ICIMD website and into the sunburst figure. And by clicking through the energy metabolism defects, you can get through to all of the OXFOS and other mitochondrial disorders. And, and just to add one thing, we definitely adopted the gene product approach, meaning protein, be it enzyme or transporter or transcription factor deficiency or superactivity, or in the case of some mitochondrial disorders, tRNA deficiencies. But in a way, the clinical or the phenotype is hidden in the structure of the nosology because we do link to Orphanet. And for many of our entries, a single entry in our ICIMD has many different clinical associations, like Johannes mentioned, and, and we provide Orphanet links for all of those. And on the other hand, Orphanet also agreed to use our classification approach in their classification. So in a way, we're using, uh, we have access to this clinical information in the structure of the ICMD itself. And also, again, I think one of the strengths of the ICMD is that even though we don't adopt this clinical 
approach for entry of individual disorders, just the fact that specific pathways are the first measure of classification or the first structure we use for, for classifying does provide, you know, a kind of a unifying approach for phenotypes of these different IMDs. So you go to each group and there are certainly some interconnection between the different manifestations within that group because, again, they are intricately related when it comes to the underlying pathway. So, so again, I wouldn't say that ours is not a clinical approach. I would say the individual entries are gene-based, and that for sure facilitates, you know, counting the number of disorders we have. But we also have clinical information included there, uh, be it indirectly just based on the pathway-related approach or, or just by orphanage linking. Uh, Shamima, can I ask you something? I, for me, in mitochondrial disorders, the most difficult part was always what's a primary mitochondrial disorder? And if I'm thinking about some of the fatty acid oxidation disorders, like very long chain fatty acid oxidation disorders, or vitamin synthesis disorders, or phospholipid uh, synthesis disorders, for me, the essence of the disease is still a mitochondrial phenotype, but the genetic defect would be or should be in a different category. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's an extremely important point that you've raised, Eva. And I think there are always going to be semantic arguments about what is primary and secondary in mitochondrial diseases. And I think all of the disorders that you just mentioned the fatty acid oxidation defects and the phospholipid synthesis and remodeling disorders are technically mitochondrial disorders. But for the interests of simplicity and um, being able to find things, we have listed those separately here in the ICIMD, but we have cross-references throughout the classification so that you can see where a disease might belong in two different homes. We've tried to list it primarily in its, its main home, but there are cross-references throughout. And, and maybe Carlos would like to give us some examples of those cross-references. I was going to say the same thing, that um, one of the goals, again, of linosology was to try to make people understand the interconnection of the different pathways. They're not in isolation. And James, you mentioned earlier this giant poster, all the all the pathways interconnected to one another. And um, in one on the one side, we want to make it initially simple, but we also need to acknowledge that sometimes these classifications can be a little arbitrary, but, you know, can belong very well in more than one category. And I don't know, one example would be ECHS1 deficiency, which is it really a branching amino acid disorder because you're interfering with the catabolism of a branching amino acid, or is it a mitochondrial disorder? And some might argue one or the other, and I'm not going to take sides on, on, on that debate, but uh, the truth is you have both. Or one of Johannes' favorite conditions, HSD10 disease, we decided to definitely pull that in the mitochondrial uh, ribonuclease group as opposed to in the branching amino acid where some people would have put it in the past. But we can still mention that see also this particular subgroup because, you know, it does belong in that pathway to a certain extent. There's various other examples like um, iron sulfur cluster metabolism. Some of them might classify as lipoic acid synthetic disorder, meaning a cofactor uh, disorder. So does it belong in the vitamin group? But of course, iron sulfur clusters are very important in the incorporation of certain subunits of the mitochondrial complexes. And we put it in both, basically. We try to put it in the one that we think it's more primarily important. I think we put it in mitochondrial. But we always reference to the other one as well. And if I remember correctly, 10% of all the entries, meaning if you have 1,500 entries, about 150 of them 
were cross-referenced to another group. So this is not really the exception. It is, we're talking about a significant number of disorders in which we actually put our brains together and decided to you know, put it in more than one group, sometimes even more than two groups. It can be quite important for families when you've got exceptionally rare disorders to have a, a wider group within which their disorder sits for community and, and support. I mean, the danger of really narrowing everything down to a small group is that that you can feel unsupported a bit more isolated if you haven't got a a way to explain your condition to other people more broadly that's true and i have a good example in cdg and there is a slc 39a8 deficiency which is a manganese transporter so it's a transporter defect but it causes mitochondrial function abnormalities so it could be a mitochondrial disease in some patients it causes lee syndrome but it's also CDG because the manganese transport affects glycosylation in the Golgi system. So it's also CDG. So you can put it in three groups and three patient support groups as well. Well, I'll, I'll let you fight Shamima for that one then, I suppose. Um, you've got six supergroups, 24 subgroups, over 1,500 diagnoses. That's it now, right? Job done? Well, um, no, the job is never done. That's that's a short answer. And one of the main purposes was that there were so many classifications before, and it's really hard to keep up with what's going on, especially now that next-generation sequencing and more and more disorders are being described. So to give you an example, at the time we started to work on the ICIMD itself, we were keeping track of the old nosology, and there were about five new disorders each month. And I will say that since we published the ICIMD in January, so four months, there have been, um, I believe, 17 new disorders that are being added. Um, we have a, an advisory board of almost 80 experts who can provide buy-in when we, when we come into, let's say, tricky new entries to add here. But um, for most new entries, it's kind of standard. You have, oh, there's a new mitochondrial disorder that falls into complex one subunits. So that's very easy. In fact, we have Shamima as, as one of the main leaders of SICMD. So it's easy to just reach out and say, oh, there's this new disorder. We sh should we add it here? And it's an easy answer. Yes. Some other ones are a little, a little tricky. But but again, the work is, is always there. It's never going to end. We're always going to have new conditions. And we're actually putting our brains together on how to you know, continue to maintain this. And the first few updates we included were actually immediately incorporated into the website. So again, I encourage people to visit the website that, that Johannes created with, with Marcus Keller. The task of making it last is a, is a bigger task than creating it. So after the rather heroic effort to finish the ICIMB, we face an even more heroic effort to really keep going. So I would argue, yes, we have um, a set of uh, people who are going on with it, but I'm sure we can do better with getting everyone together. And we hope that without COVID and with the ability to meet at SIM meetings, SIMD meetings and other meetings, we can actually have a feeling that we are a group of people who know each other and talk to each other rather than communicating by email. So, yes, we are working on it and we recognize that make it last is and make it progress is the biggest challenge um, of them all, but we believe we will manage. Yeah, and one other thing is that the website also has a contact link. So anyone who wants to make recommendations over whether we should add a new disorder or remove a new disorder or put it in a different entry or whatever recommendation it is, it will reach us. Johannes first and Marcus and all of us. And and we will basically reach out to our advisory board and make decisions from there. So again, I think this is, again, one of the main advantages of, 
of having a unified approach, not just that it can serve as a basis for emergency registries or textbooks or articles, but also that we can rely on the expertise of various people in individual disorders. So, so yeah, again, I encourage people to to reach out, go visit the website, and if they have any issues, to you know access the contact link there. And finally, the one thing I wanted to bring up is you noted in your initial discussion within the paper that you shied away from using the term inborn errors as it's perceived quite negatively, especially amongst patients. Is it time the SSIEM changed its name? Well, I would not agree with that because uh, when Archibald Garrett coined this term more than 100 years ago, it was really a huge step in medicine. The first person who really understood the concept of a deficiency or a disturbance in metabolism as a as a reason for a clinical phenotype um, with acaptonuria at the time. So yes, we decided not to use this historical term, but I think the SM is a long and well-established society and is kind of proud to be on the shoulders of a real giant. Um, namely Archibald Garrett. We give out the Archibald Garrett Award for really outstanding metabolic patients for the JMD. And I believe um, if only for honoring your ancestors and, and knowing that we are in a tradition, we are very happy to keep the name Inborn Heirs of Metabolism for the SSIM. And after all, we have our American uh, friends with the, who actually have SIMD and have the in, inherited metabolic disease in their name. So we work together in a good transatlantic cooperation to combine history and the ICIMD terminology. Perfect. Well, I think you've I think you've convinced me it's more simple than I thought it was. <laughs> um, I'm I'm exceptionally grateful for your time. Um, certainly, if you've been listening to this and it's piqued your interest, then do go to the journal web pages and find this paper by searching for um, the International Classification of Inherited Metabolic Disorders. And you can also go to the website at www.icimd.org and have a look at the famous sunburst plot and, and have a go at finding some different disorders on there. Uh, Johannes, Shamima, Carlos and Eva, thank you all for your time today. Well, thank you, James. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, James. And finally, thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the first year of podcasts. There's plenty more to come. Until next time, goodbye.